was like, wait a minute, it's, it's turkey season, isn't it? And I haven't hunted turkey since I was a teenager, and I was, I was telling the boys about this, but, you know, I used to hunt as a teenager, and, you know, it was kind of, you know, Madison County, I imagine it's probably like it is around here, you know, it's like turkey season is kind of a national holiday, you know, and so around that time, all the boys in school, they show up in their camos and their bibs and everything, and, and you know, you know, they all, uh, you know, you can, you can hear them in the classroom, you can just hear, you know, and stuff like that, and, and so teachers are always taking away turkey calls and stuff like that, and, and the last time that I went turkey hunting uh, was the very first time that I ever shot a deer, because I remember my brother-in-law took me, and, um, and, uh, and, and we were calling some men, and he looked out, and he, he said, there's some turkeys right over there, and I looked over, and sure enough, and, and as it was getting closer to us, uh, my brother-in-law was going, shoot him, shoot him. And I was going, I don't, I don't think that's a gobbler. I think it's a hen. He said, no, it's a gobbler. I see the, I see the, the, the beard. Shoot him. Okay. So <laughs> I pulled the trigger, and oh, we got him. He's, he's flopping around. We run over there, and, and he picks him up, and he's looking all over. And, and I mean, he, for several minutes, and he goes, I could have swore I saw a, a, a beard on this. Okay, well, thanks for helping me shoot my first illegal de- uh, turkey. Now, maybe that was kind of a confession, but ever since then, I haven't turkey hunted because that's when I realized that I don't like to eat turkey. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a deer guy myself, so um, beef and pork and then venison, so I don't know. Uh, so we're going to be in, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. And I'm going to kind of start a timer for myself so I can stay on track and not get too uh, carried away with myself. You'll never believe it, but when you're sitting up here, sometimes time just kind of um, just slips by and you don't even realize it. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2. Last week you started into the book of Second Corinthians after appropriately spending the last few months in First Corinthians, and so the logical place to go next is Second Corinthians. And so, uh, you know, Mike mentioned as he taught last week, he mentioned that the theme of this book of Second Corinthians is comfort in affliction. Comfort in affliction. And so Paul wrote this letter just, just actually months uh, after writing First Corinthians. And so this was very much a letter of, of comforting and of encouraging. Praise the Lord, we have some rain. Everybody needs rain, there it is. I, I, think that, I, I think that Paul, in writing this letter, desired to comfort this young church, partly because um, just prior to, to the writing of this, of this book, the church had been embroiled in uh, some bitter conflict and turmoil uh, within itself. And, and I know that as you guys were studying uh, through that book that you were becoming familiar with much of that. For one thing, there was, there was the making of one of the first church splits that I know of that was ever recorded in the Bible um, as many of the Corinthian believers were beginning to pick and choose you know like who their favorite pastors were who their favorite Bible teachers and their favorite apostles were and so they were starting to splinter off and isolate themselves uh, from one another causing this this division not only that, but there was an incident, uh, you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, and, and Lance Calvert came and taught on that back in October, uh, there was an incident with, with a man who was openly and un- unapologetically you know, having an affair. He was sleeping with his, his father's wife, which would, at best, would have been his, his stepmother. Right, which which is not even done. You know, Paul said, that not, "Don't even, not even the, the 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 wicked Gentiles do that." Why, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? So Paul mourned over the fact that that church was dealing with this matter lightly when they should have been trying to desperately plead with this man to repent. And so, because the church just kind of let it go, 
uh, and, and didn't deal with it appropriately, the situation was now at fever pitch and was required, uh, required some severe uh, discipline immediately. And so on account of these two things and a few other matters, uh, Paul had to write them with some words of rebuke and strong discipline that they needed to deal with these issues immediately. Now, it's, it's worth it to say briefly uh, that there is some conjecture by, by many uh, more recent New Testament uh, scholars that there may have been another letter written in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians um, in which Paul would have written these things and, and these were more harsh even than what he wrote in 1st Corinthians. And so, we would, and so they, they call that conjecturally the, the harsh letter, you know, uh, the harsh writing. And, and if that's the case... Uh, it's a letter which we now longer, no longer have available to us, and so it will be considered a lost letter if there ever was one at all. So really quickly I'll say, d- does that mean that if that lost letter shows up, then we should add it to the Bible? I, I'll, really quickly I'll say the short answer is no. Um, the long answer is no. If, if, if God wanted it to be in the Bible, it would already be in the Bible. Okay, I'll, I'll just put it like that. So, so there was this season of incredible tension and turmoil within the church at, at Corinth. Uh, and, and so they were a church embroiled in conflict and on the verge of crumbling. Um, and so one of the problems it would seem was their pride in many ways as a church. Their pride and their unwillingness to humbly accept some, some commands that was passed down to them from the Lord through Paul. Uh, that threatened to cripple their testimony as believers. And, and so Paul, as a, as a founding pastor, as, as, as an apostle, went to work trying to deal with these issues in Corinth and while all, all the while working in this church plant in, in Ephesus, right? So he's dealing with one church. Now, most pastors I know, they, they have their hands full just dealing with one church. You know, I mean, you know, Mike and I, we used to call and talk on the phone every week. We don't as much now. But, I mean, just, just hearing the stories, you know, I mean, he, he feels like he's got his hands full just, um, just working with, with the one church, you know. And, and these uh, pastors, they shed many tears and they expend all their energy into um, their, their, their flock, into their church. But I can't imagine being like Paul, you know, p- planting one church while also trying to put out some intense fires in another church just across the sea and to make it, worse he didn't have a phone he didn't have email he didn't have texting he couldn't quickly communicate back and forth with them so he would either have to send a letter to them and then wait to hear a report back from them or he would have to go there himself and deal with the deal with the issue and so the whole while this church is beginning to question paul's apostolic authority that which is kind of a big deal so he can't what they're saying they can't even be sure if if uh well paul himself he can't be sure that they're going to listen to what he says and so uh, you can imagine that this church at Corinth is giving Paul a lot of gray hairs or they're falling out right so so if if Paul indeed wrote Hebrews um, then then you can understand why uh, he would have penned you know Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which says obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that will be unprofitable for you. So, so if Paul di- didn't write that, then, uh, then we can rest assured that he probably would have uh, put his stamp of approval on that passage for sure. Now, all that said, 
What we ultimately find in 2 Corinthians is the aftermath and the final outcome of all this conflict. That's what kind of what 2 Corinthians is to some degree. Paul rejoices at the reports that are coming into him uh, that the believers at Corinth, for the most part, had finally repented of some of their misbehavior, and, and after they realized how much they had broken Paul's heart and recognized how unruly and sinful they had been uh, in some of their behaviors, they eagerly began to set things right. Now, all the conflict wasn't completely gone yet because Paul still had to address some of those uh, detractors um, who were still in Corinth, who were questioning Paul's apostolic authority. You know, they, they, they weren't really crazy about Paul and maybe his preaching style, or maybe they didn't like the way that he, that he pastored, or they didn't, didn't like something about him, and so they, they were still questioning his apostolic authority. Are you really sent from God, or are you just a huckster? You know, so this is, as Mike said last week, a letter of comfort in the midst of affliction. So there's still quite a bit of, of shell shock after you know the more intense parts of this season of conflict and so you know anytime a church undergoes a season of discord and church discipline it's it always shakes people up it's always disturbing um it's painful so so while this church they're kind of licking their wounds paul being the loving apostle um that he was having much affection for this church that was at corinth uh, as much as a mother would have for her children he begins to treat them in a very motherly way and, and wrote them this letter of comfort and to sort of follow up on some of those things that took place and to reassure and to reaffirm them in their commitment to Christ. So as we look at, at the end of, of uh, chapter 1, uh, where, where Mike uh, left off this chapter, is, is, some, is to some extent Paul's sigh of relief uh, that after he had meted out some harsh discipline through a letter that the church at Corinth had, had received it well, had chosen to submit to the Lord and obedience concerning those situations um, that he was writing about. And so he's, he's getting some of these things off his chest. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve, his sleeve and saying, wow, guys, you have no idea how much uh, this conflict really had me worked up in tears and, and sorrow. And I'm so thankful that in the end that you all chose obedience and submission rather than continuing on in prideful rebellion. And, and then he's going to go on in chapter 2 and give the church some follow-up instruction on how to deal with one conflict that hadn't been fully resolved yet. Uh, and, and then finally close the chapter with some more debriefing of what all happened. Um, and then finally just an outpouring of awe and wonder of the gospel ministry that God called him to. So that's kind of a, kind of a, a thumbnail sketch. I guess I should have thrown that up on the slides, but I, I didn't think about that. Um, so one thing that we saw from chapter 1 is that Paul is, is now, where we're at now, uh, addressing the fact that he had said in 1 Corinthians that he would come visit them, and then he ended up not coming. He said, I'm going to come and see you, I want to help set some of these things straight, and then he didn't come. It didn't happen. Well, this apparently didn't set too well with some people. You know, somebody says they're going to do something and it doesn't happen, and, and there's no explanation, you know, it, kind of, it doesn't always set well. With, and so, uh, so Paul maybe feels like he needs to defend himself. Uh, because some of them are now perhaps beginning to say, we can't trust Paul to do the things that he says that he will do. And if we can't trust him to do what he says he'll do, maybe we can't even trust him as an apostle. We can't trust the words that he says about, about God. So Paul needs to deal swiftly with, with any such accusation because the, the work of the gospel is at stake here. You know, if they start doubting his apostolic authority, they might start questioning their faith. And, and Paul doesn't want that. So Paul tells him in this first chapter, look, I wasn't, I wasn't vacillating. I wasn't, I wasn't being wishy-washy and indecisive whenever I, I said I was going to come and then I didn't. In fact, we're going to find out later that Paul had a very specific reason why he chose not to come after he said he would. So all that said, we're going to pick up in, um, 
in, in chapter, I want to pick up in chapter 1 because he didn't quite finish that. So let's just finish chapter 1 uh, and, and uh, do last week's and then we'll, we'll pick up in chapter 2. So verse 23 of, of chapter 1 says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. He says in verse 24, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but that we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So if we were to pose the question, why didn't Paul come to Corinth when he said, Paul is here answering this question, look, the reason I didn't come to Corinth was to spare you. I was trying to spare you. They, you know, like we said, they had been embroiled in this church brawl that required some strong dealings. And yet, as we'll see, Paul decided that now would be a bad time to go to Corinth just yet, because if he had come to them right in the middle of some of this turmoil with apostolic authority and, and dealt with them face to face, that he was going to have to speak to them very harshly and, and severely to them in dealing with some of these matters that were plaguing the church. It was getting to that, to that pitch. And so there was going to be a lot of frowny faces and a lot of tears by his coming. He didn't want to do it that way. Uh, he thought there's got to be a better way to, to handle this situation. You know, some of us, you know, we love a good confrontation. I'm not that guy, but some guys, some folks, they love a good confrontation, especially when you're right, you know? You, you love to, 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 to get into an argument and win. And, and some of us, if we were Paul, we would have said, hey, those, those ignorant Corinthian Christians, you know, let, let me have them. I'll, I'll tell them a thing or two about how immature and how ungodly they're behaving. But Paul wasn't willing to handle it that way, um, at least at least not in person because we knew that it was it would crush them it would crush them and so he was speaking out of a heart of love of a pastor for a church it, it, it was the heart of christ really he, he was he was trying to forbear for as long as he could and so even though paul was was an apostle and had every authority to come meet out some church discipline yet he says not that we have dominion over your faith but we are fellow workers for your joy for by faith you stand in other words this isn't a cult we're not trying to strip away your freedom in Christ. It's not what I'm about, Paul is saying. I, I'm an apostle. I'm not a dictator, is what he's trying to say. And he said, I have, I have no desire to come in and squash your joy so that you begin to stumble in the very faith that gives you a standing before God. I didn't want to do that. So Paul's earnest desire, in fact, the thing that he's laboring for is uh, for the Corinthians to be full of joy. He's laboring for their joy. Why? Well, he says, for by faith you stand. What that means is, if being in Christ, being a Christian, brings you joy, then your joy will have the effect of increasing your faith. And as you increase your faith, you'll want to press on to continue submitting more and more of your life to Jesus in every area of your life. And if your joy gets squashed, what happens? Often your faith begins to falter. So sometimes the, the joy is the first thing to go, and as the joy goes, then the faith begins to wane. And so as we walk uh, contrary to the Lord, and our joy begins to wane, and as our joy falters, our faith falters and weakens. So Paul says, my goal is your joy. My goal is your joy. You want joy? I want that for you too, and I want it for myself. And, and so I'm a fellow laborer for your joy. And so he's trying to handle the situation in Corinth in such a way so as to deal as gently but firmly as possible with the sin situation and then where repentance comes, he wants to lead them back to joy so that they're not crushed and, and despondent. And, and you know, one of the evidences that you're sealed in Christ is that he is gradually transforming you to look more and more like Jesus, to desire the things that God desires and to pursue obedience and to do the, the works that he prepared for you beforehand that you might walk in them. 
And, and so if, as a Christian, you decide that obedience isn't for you and, and begin to stray from that, but rather continue to try to, to uh, still try to claim the promises of, of a Christian, I, I'm a Christian, and yet walking in that sin, you're often returning to the very practices and behaviors that Christ s- saved you out of to begin with. And so you're giving yourself back over to Satan after having been saved from Satan's power, and you may not even realize it. And so for this reason, God institutes discipline and accountability within the church. Now, nobody likes church discipline. Uh, We don't even like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. It, I mean, in fact, I think that probably, uh, uh, probably Mike scheduled the birth of his baby boy to coincide with 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just so he wouldn't have to teach this chapter. No, I'm just kidding. We don't like to talk about it. Yet Paul said in 1 Corinthians... That if you let sin fester in a church, it's like yeast. It, it'll grow and it'll fester until it's, it's infected the whole church. And, and then you know what you'll have? A church that's bloated with sin and division and bitterness and no joy and a deterioration of faith and ultimately um, separation and death. The whole thing falls apart. And so Jesus told us even in Matthew 18 that there's sin in the church it needs to be addressed with love First, privately, and then if the person doesn't repent, then take a couple more, and then ultimately bring it to uh, the church. And then if there's still no repentance in, in that uh, area, um, then such a person is, is walking in willful uh, sin, and they need to be dismissed from the fellowship, um, is what Jesus teaches, and to be excommunicated uh, with, with regret and with sorrow and, and with tears, but it, but it needs to happen. They can't, the idea is they can't be allowed to consider themselves a part of a, of, of a fellowship of believers with a clear conscience as long as they're claiming to be a Christian while walking in unrepented sin because it will destroy them and the church. So Paul says, I'm laboring for your joy so that you might continue to stand in your faith in Christ. So, so Paul says, when this matter of church discipline came up, I, I want, he says, I wanted to find the best way to deal with it so as to maximize your joy. So um, with that uh, introduction, now 15 minutes in, uh, I, I'm hoping that we can just breeze through this chapter uh, with just a little explanation as we go step by step. Now that we kind of have a, a, some, some of the background of what's going on here. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Corinthians. Paul says, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come to you again in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Again, Paul's desire for the church at Corinth is not to produce sorrow, but to produce joy. Paul knows that if he came to them in person at this particular time, it would be a painful visit. So he says, if I had come to you then, it would have made you sad, which would make me sad. And now everybody's sad, and what good would that accomplish? So it's highly, uh, it's po- highly possible um, that, that prior to writing 2 Corinthians, and I'll just say this again really quickly, that, that poss- Paul may have made a quick trip to Corinth uh, to deal with some heated conflict there. Uh, and, and in fact, some more, again, some more recent New Testament scholars even think there's a good chance that he might have, um, well, you know, he might have written that, that, the harsh letter that we were talking about a second ago. At any rate, we could perhaps understand Paul to be saying, I just don't want to make another painful trip like that. I just don't want to have to do that again. Now, now it should be said that not all church discipline needs to be harsh. In fact, most pastors I know would love for their people, uh, uh, I mean, that, you know, that they love their, their folks, and so um, that they would much rather not have to do it at all, and when they have to, they do it with as much love and affection and tenderness as they possibly can so that nobody even knows about it before it's, the thing is done. But 
but it, was, it would seem that this situation at Corinth was getting so desperate that what was needed was a bit more sternness than what Paul was feeling comfortable with at the time. And so Paul also recognizes the influence and the sway that his presence as an apostle, as a harsh disciplinary figure would be right now in that church. If I come, then you're going to be sorrowful, and I'll be sorrowful. It's going to be a big drama fest, you know, hurt feelings and, and, uh, and tears, you know. And he goes, look, you guys have had your hands full dealing with persecution there in Corinth. And I've had my hands full here in Ephesus. And so it's not going to do either of us any good for me to come there and to intensify the situation with more sadness. And so one of the things that's getting us through this season of affliction is our joy in Christ and in one another. So in the midst of this present situation, Paul is trying to survive and also, and, and also to help this church in Corinth to not only survive, but to thrive in Christ. So, so we'll learn that to deal with this conflict, he was going to employ a different strategy through the writing of a letter. Uh, rather than a personal visit, and sometimes you can deal with uh, matters through a letter, and it can give it can have a greater impact than if you just show up and get into a screaming match, and nothing ever gets accomplished, uh, nothing ever gets communicated, and everybody goes home upset and crying and with their feelings hurt. So, so Paul says, "I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy." There's the word again, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. When you have joy, I have joy. We, we covered this, right? When you have no joy, it sucks the joy right out of me. And so this is the heart of the pastor. While his ultimate joy is in Christ, yet to some extent, his heart is tied up to the heart of his people. And this is no, not only true for pastors, but all Christians are li- called to live in this kind of tight-knit communion. Paul said in Romans 12, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And he said, Be of the same mind one to another. Right? So, so Paul goes on, uh, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, in verse 4, With many tears, not that you should been, have been grieved, but that you might know the love which I have abundantly for you. So now, as Paul is now writing, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. You know? He's going, look guys, you know, back, back when I had to write those harsh things to you, I, I was, you guys need to know that I was an, an emotional, teary-eyed mess. Don't think I was enjoying that. I was a mess. You have no idea how much I love you and how much I care about you. He's just, he's just gushing over the church at Corinth. And, then I, and that, that was one of the hardest letters I've ever had to, to write. And so Paul is pouring out his heart here. No, no parent gets any joy in having to, to severely punish or discipline their child to the point of tears. Now, maybe that's not always true because I do find it humorous when my little daughter, when she's in trouble, she'll throw out that cute little pouty face. You know, she'll do the kind of thing and 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 you know my wife and I we, we often have to hold back laughter but my wife doesn't hold it back she just lets it rip and so I'm, I'm thinking we're gonna this kid's gonna be one screwed up kid he's, she's, he's gonna she's gonna go what why are you laughing at me but we know that there's a day coming when that that's not going to be cute anymore and when it's going to be heartbreaking to have to discipline that little girl when she does when she does wrong and so most of you are in here and your parents and you have far more experience than I have and so um, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on that but I'm not looking forward to that you know um, but one commentator uh, said that the letter Paul's referring to was written with ink I'm sorry it was written not with ink but with tears and so it brought Paul absolutely no kind of satisfaction or happiness to have to write words of rebuke and discipline to this church I think that in so doing Paul was reflecting the heart of God. It um, doesn't bring God any satisfaction when he has to discipline his people, but he often does it because it's for ultimate good. 
So uh, he goes on to say, but if anyone has caused grief, in verse 5, he has not grieved me, but all of you, to some extent, not to be too severe. Which he's saying, during this season of turmoil and strife and unconfessed sin, if there was anyone who caused grief by their sin, he didn't just bring it to me, uh, but he said, well, I, I realized I was just reading you uh, the NLT version. This is what the NLT says. I really like it. It says, during the season of turmoil and strife and unconfessed sin, if there was anyone who caused grief by their sin, he didn't just bring grief to me, but I'm not stating it too severely to say that he, was brought, uh, that he brought grief to you as well. I'm sorry, that's not the NLT. That was the Jeratune translation. I had, I had my little paraphrases marked out there, and that was, that was, that was my little paraphrase. But, but the point is, this, what this causes us to ask, I think, uh, causes me to ask anyway, because we're nosy, and we want to know what's going on. Who is Paul talking about here? You know, who's this person that caused the offense? Well, Paul doesn't say. Um, some scholars think that he may be referring to some cantankerous believers that have been causing uh, some division and making a stink and openly defying and challenging Paul's authority as, as an apostle. Uh, the more traditional view is that perhaps Paul is talking about the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, that was having the, the affair with his, his uh, father's wife. And so either way, Paul had instructed the church, whether it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the case of, of that man, or, or if it was in some other letter concerning some other person in some other incident, uh, th- that if that person, uh, that if the church, if they wanted to be in the will of God, then what they need to do is to deal with the offender uh, swiftly by excommunicating him and dismissing him from the fellowship. And that was, that was the most severe, that's always the most severe form of, 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 of um, church discipline. And, and as it turns out, that's finally what they did. You know, they, they did what Paul commanded them to do. And so, while Paul wasn't happy about having to ask them such a thing, yet he was happy that they were willing to submit to the will of God on this matter. And not only that, but we're going to find out that this man evidently was made sorrowful with a godly sorrow unto repentance. And so, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, he says um, in verse 6, uh, is sufficient for such a man. Yeah, that was verse 6. That's right. Mm-hmm. So the whole of the church, as we said, was faithful to carry out this painful yet necessary discipline upon this man. And they were eager and they were zealous to do it uh, in such a way that Paul is now saying, okay, that's enough. I think he's learned his lesson. It's time to hit the reverse button now. It's time to bring him back and to restore him. So Paul says in verse 7, um, he says, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So this guy is now repentant. He's also severely wounded. I mean, when, when, when the Lord disciplines you, he, he wounds you. But it's, but it's a faithful wound, faithful of the wounds of a friend, such as, you know, faithful of the wounds of the Lord, because he's doing such a thing to, uh, to, uh, to sanctify us. And, um, and so he's wounded. And so like a bone that needs to be broken and then reset Paul tells the Corinthians it's time for you to now to now reset that bone bring him back in so at this point the church was so eager and zealous to get on track and to do the right thing by disciplining this man that they forgot their purpose of discipline to begin with which is always restoration restoration is always the goal the the ultimate end game and the end goal of, of church discipline Jesus said if a man sins rebuke him but if he repents forgive him 
And Paul said in Galatians 6, he said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And he said, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the goal of any church discipline, whether it's a tender word spoken in private or whether it's a matter that's become so seriously, uh, so serious that it has to be dealt with publicly, um, the, the goal is always restoration. So let's move on to verse 8. He says, Therefore I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. The time has come for you to receive the offender back, begin the work of healing his wounds by speaking of words of affection and love and tenderness and encouragement and affirming him in the Lord. Um, he says, for to this end I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So Paul's saying, this is why I wrote to you, but, but didn't come. Here's why that happened. I was really concerned at that point about whether or not if during this conflict you were in, if you would pass the, the, the test of obedience and truly commit to the will of God rather than following after the flesh. And so I, I, put, I put you to this test. Now, now, many times for parents, you'll often have the choice of either helping your child fix a problem or, or giving them instructions, standing back and seeing if they will do it on their own, seeing if they'll do the right thing, right? And I imagine this, that's going to be a difficult thing. Um, so Paul was putting the Corinthian church to this test by asking them to do a very hard thing rather than him coming and doing it himself and that is to deal with a matter of church discipline on their own. I mean, imagine being one of those Corinthian believers. Put yourself in their shoes. I, you just heard this, you know, you're sitting in church, and they're in, in first century Corinth, and you're, you're sitting in the meeting, and you hear this letter read and, that you have to take part in disciplining one of your Christian brothers. Maybe it's somebody that you play, uh, you know, you play bridge with on Tuesdays, you know, or you go turkey hunting with. This is your, this is your friend, and, and he says you have to take part in disciplining him because of his unrepentant sin that he's willingly walking in. You have to take part in, in dismissing him from the fellowship. I mean, can you imagine how hard that would be? Would you be able to follow God's will and do that hard thing in that moment? One thing is for sure, what Paul was asking the church to do would require them all together, uh, all come together rather in unity and in, and in love. It was going to be necessary uh, because they were going to need each other during this really difficult time. And so it's always painful, but when it happens, it requires the church to come together in unity. And But praise the Lord, they, they were indeed obedient, and they, they pulled together, and they, they did the hard thing. And because they were obedient, the Lord blessed their efforts. And, and as it turns out, uh, it was effective. The guy who, were the, who they had the discipline in this way ultimately repented, as we'll learn, and he is now fit to be restored back into the fellowship. Now, the other thing I would say, just out of that verse really quickly before we move on, is that if you find that you're in a place where you're unwilling to submit to God's will in your life in some, some area or in some way, if, if you're hanging on to some sin, you'll probably notice this morning that you have a lack of joy. You'll probably notice a lack of joy, I can guarantee it. And, and you have no joy because you're trying to serve two masters. And, and it's killing you because we weren't created to serve two masters. We were created to serve one master. But the moment you finally choose to repent and let go of a thing and give it to the Lord, I can guarantee you that the Lord will replace that thing, whatever it was you were trying to find satisfaction in, with joy that you won't be able to contain. You're going to go, why on earth was I hanging on to that thing 
The joy of the Lord is so much more satisfying. What verse was I on? <laughs> That's what I thought, verse 9. We already said verse 9. We already did that, didn't we? Paul continues. Let's go on to verse 10. There we go. Now I know where I'm at. Now whom you forgive anything, he says, I also forgive. For indeed, if I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So let that guy know that if you've forgiven him, I've forgiven him, forgiven him too. Which is why, which may give us some indication that if it wasn't the, the man in 1 Corinthians 5, it may have been another situation where a man was, was opposing Paul directly. That, that's, that's one evidence we might have that. Again, you, know, it's, you, can, you can do what you want with that. Uh, but the point is, you've forgiven him, I forgive him. God forgives him. Let him know that, that there's forgiveness, there's restoration all around. And he says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not, we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul is, is seeing all this persecution that he's enduring, that the people in Corinth are enduring. And on top of that, now they have these divisions and this turmoil that's caused by sin and people taking sides. And now there's this, this tendency on the part of Corinth, uh, the, the Christians at Corinth, as they're meeting out this church discipline to actually forget to restore the man when he's ready to be restored so that they come, out, uh, come close to crushing him without realizing it. It's like, pay attention, Corinth. It's kind of maybe what Paul is saying gently. Pay attention. Don't you see that Satan has all these devices and he has all these tricks he's trying to play to, to try to trip us up and undermine your faith and to destroy you? He says we're not ignorant of his devices. And so we, we know what's going on here. He's trying to divide us. He's trying to introduce sin and divisions into the church. And he's still doing that today. Is he not? He's trying to look for ways to, to find the, the weak crack and try to bang on that crack until he can make some division and introduce some sin, introduce some pride. So he says we need to combat that by remaining disciplined in the practice of, of sound teaching and of, and of church discipline when it's necessary and showing grace and restoration when it's necessary and most of all pursuing one another's joy. Weeping with one another when we weep and, and, and rejoicing with those who rejoice and always pursuing in, in, in the work of, of um, the ministry of joy. So he says, let's stay in this thing together. I think it's a good word for, for the church from Paul in that. Um, you know, when discord and division starts to come about, when bitterness and hard feelings start to surface, he's saying, pay attention. Don't be ignorant to what, what Satan's trying to do. Furthermore, he says in verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed to Macedonia. So to prove to the Corinthian believers just how, how much Paul loved them, he says, do you want to know what really happened when, when I didn't come to Corinth when I said I would? I, you know, I wasn't just goofing off. I wasn't just doing nothing. I was waiting to hear from you. What took you so long? No, he didn't say that. But I was waiting to hear from uh, you know, Titus, who had gone to deliver the, the letter to you. He was going to come back and tell me how you guys received it and what came of it. I was, I was waiting anxiously. Um, I was sitting on the edge of my seat. I even went to Troas to try to keep myself busy with some gospel work there and even began to have some open doors there. I mean, I, I could have planted the church there. I was like, things were, were kind of going well there in Troas. And yet the whole time, you know what I was thinking about, Corinth? I was thinking about you. I, my body was in Troas, but my heart and my mind was, was, in, was in Corinth. It was there with you. 
And that's how much I love you. He goes, that's, that's how much I care about you. In fact, Paul says, you know, that he finally got so anxious uh, that he decided to go look for Titus. Titus is not coming. Where is Titus? I got to hear, I got to hear the report, you know. So, and so he, he thinks, you know, he, he, he thinks maybe he got hung up in, in Macedonia somewhere. So he heads across over to Macedonia. Maybe he's going to go door knocking on all the churches in Macedonia and say, hey, has Titus been through here yet? Is, is, he, is, he, in, is he here? And so he says, I went to Macedonia looking for Titus. It, you know, it's like when you send a really crucial text message or, or an email and you're sitting by the phone or you're sitting by the com- computer and you're waiting for a reply. And the longer you wait, the more anxious you get and you think, forget it, I'm just going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call him. I, I, I got to hear from them. I, I got to deal with this thing right now. The suspense is killing me. That's what Paul did. He went looking for Titus in Macedonia to hear the report from Corinth. Well, evidently Paul finally found him. Because then he says in verse 14, he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Thanks be to God, he says. You know, Paul must have heard good news from Titus, right? And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't mention what the report was, but evidenced by this chapter, it, it, was, it was good news. And so Corinth had received a letter that they were sorrowful, uh, at, at, let me start that sentence again. After Corinth had received the letter, they were sorrowful. Um, and they, they followed Paul's instructions and in taking measures to deal with, um, with these sin issues within the church. So let's, let me read that verse again to you. It says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, during that era... Um, Whenever a Roman general would have a major military victory, uh, they would they'd fight a battle or a war, and they would make a major military victory. They would take over another kingdom or another large city. Um, th- they, would, they would throw him a huge parade when he would finally come marching back triumphantly into the city of Rome with the prisoners of war and with, uh, with the spoils of war. And so this was called a triumphal procession. And so musicians would ride through the parade route, you know, playing their music, you know. Uh, they, they had their, their trumpets and their, and their sackbuts and their psalters and all their, their first, century, uh, first uh, century instruments and, um, and announcing the arrival of the victorious Roman army. Hey, look, look who's in town. Look who came back with, with a lot of loot and with some, uh, some entertainment for us. Uh, and, and look, the glory of Rome is just expanding uh, and so then the Roman army, uh, the soldiers would ride through on their horses, and then the, the priests, uh, those, the, the pagan priests would follow behind carrying their, their censers of, of burning incense, and so the smell of, of incense began to fill the air, you know, to give thanks to the gods for victory. And, and then the mighty general himself would ride through, uh, uh, through town, being pulled on a, on a beautiful chariot, being pulled by two beautiful uh, white horses. And behind him would be a procession of the prisoners of war, and then also the spoils of war were being brought through um, on display as well. And all the while, spectators are cheering and applauding. They're throwing, they're throwing flowers in the air, and, and you know, they're, they're all fawning you know, over, you know, the girls are fawning over this, you know, this big masculine general. Maybe that wasn't always the case. It probably might, might have been pretty ugly sometimes. I don't know. But, but the air was rich with the smell of flowers and incense, and of course, there's lots of, of horses, and so there's also the smell of horses, you know. But but there's this there's this aroma that's filling the streets. This Roman parade and priests. I mean, it's it's the smell of victory, you know. The incense and the flowers and the horse. It's the smell of victory, 
So Paul is using this imagery. He says the Lord is leading us in this triumphal procession in Christ. He's like a victorious army general. It's like he's marching all the way through Asia Minor. He's marching throughout the, the territory. He's marching through the known world with us. He's talking about himself and those, um, those teachers and those uh, missionaries that are going with him and, and all those that are in this apostolic work. And, and, and he's everywhere... Um, He's marching his way through all the places where the gospel has been preached and diffusing the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. And, 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 you know, and especially there in Corinth. You know, so it's like, can you smell it? it, it you know, that's, God has the victory there in Corinth is what Paul is saying. God had victory everywhere else and now he's got victory there. You can smell the aroma of Christ. And Paul is excited because he gets to be in the parade as one of the ones bearing the aroma of on him, spreading the news of the gospel wherever he goes. And quite often, you know, he, he's going to tell us that the gospel ministry is very hard, um, depleting work, and yet there's, now he's talking about the joy of it. He's talking about the, the victory that he gets to experience. He says, for we, to be, we, are to, we are to God, in verse 15, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He says, to the one, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? So for the Romans, witnessing one of these processions through the city of Rome, these smells are the smells of life and victory and triumph. But for the prisoners of war that are being led, led through the city all the way to the theaters where they're going to be used as entertainment in the stadium where they're going to be fed to, to wild animals and executed, um, all these smells are just the smell of death to them. They, they know what's coming. So these smells, is just the smell of death. So Paul says, as he bears the message of the gospel of Jesus throughout the known world, to those who hear the gospel but refuse to believe it, the message of the gospel is the smell of death to them. It, it means, for them, judgment for sin. And it means separation from God. And it means, ultimately, death and destruction. But to those who, who God is drawing to him in Christ, this gospel story smells like life. To them, it's good news. Their king is reigning victorious and is having his way on the earth. And you know, we we may not all be apostles, we may not all be traveling evangelists, but but if we are in Christ and everywhere we go, we are bearing the aroma of Christ. And so, by bearing the name of Christian, whether whether or not we're explicitly preaching the name of Jesus, people watch our lives and they can smell us. You know, we're putting off an aroma. In life, it's it's it's. What well, is it? The aroma of life in Christ, or is it the aroma of staleness and and death, like like the rest of the world? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. So, what is the gospel according to you? So Paul considers this marvelous procession of victory as the gospel marches through the known world. But a moment of sobriety, he says, and who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? This sounds like a profound rhetorical question. Who is found sufficient and worthy to be among those who bear the gospel and who breathe life and victory and redemption into a place where there was once death and defeat and darkness? Well, you know, nobody really and yet Paul wants to point out that what he's doing is trying to walk worthy of his calling. Well, how does he do that? Well, he says in verse 17, We are not as so many peddling the, the word of God, but, but as of sincerity, but as from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. 
Paul compares his own ministry uh, of the gospel to those who would peddle the word of God. And that word uh, to peddle uh, is, has to do with um, uh, men who would, they would make wine and they would water it down with a little bit of water and other additives and then they would, then they would sell it. You know, they were trying to make a, a quick buck like that. And so those who were peddling the word of God were, were trying to gain something out of it other than the glory of God and the joy of building the saints. They were tacking on their human requirements and selling it um, as God's word. Now, um, do you know what bloatware is? Are you familiar with... Bloatware is the word they use for the extra software programs that computer manufacturers put on their computers before they ship them to the retailer. And then like, you know, Best Buy or Office Max or Walmart or whatever. And then the retailer puts even more software programs on them before they sell them to the computer. Or sell them to the computer. Sell them to the, the consumer is what I was trying to say. And, and the reason they do this is because they're getting paid by these software developers to tack on their, their trial version programs onto those computers so that when the, when the consumer gets the computer, they might st- maybe they might start using those programs and then pay for the, the paid version. So if you've ever bought a brand new computer, you're familiar with this. And you're like, oh man, it's, making, it's a marketing trick, right? And what does it do? It bogs down your computer. And it actually makes, it's like, this is a brand new computer and yet it's running slow. I have all these programs that keep popping up on me and, and, and ask me if I want to, you know, my trial version has run out and do I want to buy it? No! How did you even get on my computer in the first place? Well, the manufacturers put there, it's, it's called bloatware because they're, they're doing it because they're trying to make an extra buck. Now, in, in all honesty, they are passing the savings on down to the consumer to make the computer cheaper, but still, it's frustrating. It's a marketing trick, and some Christians have sadly fallen prey to preachers who are actually peddlers of the gospel, who pretend to be sincere, but they're actually preaching a sort of Jesus and something else gospel. So, and no one would ever say this out loud, but they'll sort of put these extra expectations on you about how you should be living as a Christian so that you get the impression that Christianity is supposed to have all these other attachments added on. And these are, I guess, what we can call bloatware Christians, you know? And they're, they're really, they're, they're victims of, of bloatware teaching, you know, of this, uh, this uh, added, this ped- these peddlers of the gospel that are trying to tack on extra stuff to, to what they're either expressing or implying uh, that you need to be doing as a Christian. So now one thing, I'll say this, that Pastor, uh, you know, Mike Harrison up at Parkland Chapel, one the, as, as he was planting the church, one of the things that he wanted to offer a, a, as a church at Parkland Chapel was effectively to be able to extract all, all of the, he said, he wanted to extract the religion uh, out of, out of and, and it, religion is a good word, but bad religion is what he means. And so he wanted to extract all the bloatware out of Christianity, so that the church can simply be a gathering place that is stripped down to the bare basics. It's, it's the apostles' doctrine and, and prayer and, and the breaking of bread and, and fellowship, so that the church can just be a gathering place uh, of, of worshiping the Lord and trusting in Christ alone for salvation and not any works or rituals. And I, I'm thankful for, for A.V. Chapel, uh, because I think, that, I think that you all have the same goal here as well, for this to be a, a bloatware-free church. You know, not all the additives, not all the junk that gets added in, but just the pure, unadulterated gospel. That's what we ought to pursue. That's what we ought to strive for and to not allow the extra junk to come in when it tries to sneak in. And so you come as you are, not here to learn a bunch of rules, but to simply be filled with the knowledge of Christ through the word of God and to let the word of God itself cleanse you and the spirit of God transform you in his way. And who is sufficient for these things? Well, if we're called to be the aroma of Christ because we are uh, uh, 
if we think that we're, we're called to do it because we're sinless and a perfect picture of moral uh, character and virtue from day one, then none of us would be sufficient. But Christ called us as we are, and then by his death and burial and resurrection, he offers us forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And as we receive that, we put our faith in that, and we begin to walk with him by faith, he gradually transforms us into his image. We, he, he doesn't do the, the second-rate bloatware. He puts his own spirit into us. He writes his own law onto our heart and causes, he gives us stuff that we actually want. It's like software that you actually want. You know, he puts the stuff into us that we actually want and, 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 uh, and fills us with joy whenever we find ourselves walking in obedience to God, doing the things that he's put before us to do. And so as God transforms us, who is sufficient for these things? By the grace of God, we get to be sufficient for these things. Our sufficiency is in Christ, who has established us and who has anointed us and who has set us apart and sealed us and he made us his, makes us his. So God, we thank you um, that you have made us yours. And um, we thank you, Lord, that... um, Lord, that we get to, uh, to be in this place where we get to spread joy around. And, and the joy is not uh, the, the joy that, that we can all follow a bunch of rules. Um, but Lord, that it's the joy that we, we have a personal relationship with you. And, uh, and so Lord, we just pray um, as we go out of here this morning, Lord, that you would just bless us with, um, Lord, just an awareness. An awareness of... Um, just the way that you are transforming us and, and, and the fact that uh, you're putting in our path good works that you've already prepared for us, uh, that we might walk in them. So help us uh, to submit to you in all things. Uh, pray that we might pass the test and we might be found sufficient in Christ. Let's pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.